You're listening to the Sixers Beat with your host, Derek Bodner, right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner here with Max Rappaport on the latest Sixers Beat podcast. Before we begin, as always, you can subscribe to the podcast. I don't know why we say this, because if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably already subscribed. You probably know how to use a hey, podcast maybe, maybe app. You're, maybe you're uh, listening in someone's car, like they're driving and playing from their phone, and you're listening yeah. and you're thinking like, man, this is a great podcast. How can I subscribe yeah. to this? <laughs> you never know. But if you are asking that question, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn Radio app. Also, check out the CLNS Radio app where you can find ourselves, Sam Vecini's Game Theory Podcast. Uh, Real GM Radio, B-Ball Breakdown, and a whole slew of others. As always, if you can, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, we are vain. We want to get as many as we can. We also want to move up in those rankings. So please do that. Help us out. Uh, we appreciate it. All right. There's been a few things come up since we did our last podcast. Where, I guess starting off with the most important. How about that Game of Zones episode, huh? <laughs> Are you a game? Are you a Game of Thrones fan? You know, what? it's funny. I'm well, one. I'm not a Game of Thrones fan. I've, I've watched the first season and that's it. Um, I feel wait, like wait, I just wait. fell too. I fell too far behind. Everyone else had already. You know, this was like last year. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to watch this, and I was just so far behind that I like I couldn't talk about it with anyone because they knew what was going to happen five seasons beyond. Um, so it just like wasn't that interesting for me, and I. I'm actually, I don't know why I haven't watched Game of Zones, because I watched, obviously, the Sixers one, the, M- the Embiid one that just came out, and it was awesome and so well done, and, I, and I, I went back and I watched a couple more, and I was like, why wasn't I watching this? This is, like, basically made for me. This is, like, made for people like me, and I don't watch this for some reason. Well, I mean, it's also in part made for people who watch Game of Thrones as well. Uh, so you have seen the Sixers, the process episode. Yes. What was your favorite reference in that? Um... I, I I thought this was underrated at the very end when uh during the during the rolling credits some I don't know if they found someone from Philadelphia to do this accent or just someone well, who they're from really Philadelphia. Con- well yeah the creators are I don't know but like I maybe maybe those guys speak with that kind of accent I feel like that that was a perfect representation of the Philadelphia accent in the just like the the take a picture and water ice and all that I thought I thought it was well done I I thought the maybe my favorite Easter egg. Was the uh, the flow the hinky flow chart that they scro- yeah. they scrolled by uh, Jim Adair's hinky flow chart with like choo choo on it and Shank Akial and all that and like all of Hinky's moves laid out. And then at the bottom, the picks will swap. Bottom left, picks will swap. Um, I loved I loved Aguilar can't even catch at the end yeah. in the credits uh, because it had nothing to do with the Sixers and was just you had you have to be from Philadelphia to really get that one. Uh, I liked Ben Simmons. And uh, on crutches as they celebrate. I mean, I I don't like it, but like it was it was a good reference. And just the the, the raising the cat thing, the fact that it's still it, it still has life. <laughs> Meek Mill uh, raising I, I the cat. I feel very good for Dennis about that. Yeah. And, and milk of the Popovich too. That was funny. <laughs> that was funny. Very <laughs> temple, well done. Temple of Shirley. Yeah, you you could tell these guys were from uh from Philadelphia. It felt like they put a little more into this one than they yeah. typically do. Uh, all right, moving on to actual basketball topics. We have a whole bunch. We have Ball uh, saying that or a report that Ball may consider working out for the Sixers. We have the report that the Sixers are high on Dennis Smith Jr. and De'Aaron Fox and that they're in play at three. 
there was obviously the talk with um, from from Bill Simmons about potentially moving up to one, and the report out there that the Sixers were considering uh, pursuing Otto Porter in free agency. So, uh, where would you like to begin, Max? Let's let's talk about let's talk about Lonzo Ball. All right, and that's a good place to start because that'll kind of where we where we're feeling about where the Lakers are with Ball and how we feel about if Ball falls to three. I feel like kind of sets up our talk about the big board a little bit more. Well, I think I th- I still think the Lakers end up going Ball at three or at two. Uh, we, I you know I think they're going to do their due diligence, but I think he is still the front runner for that spot. But if he falls to three, then this is a really I love the, the Lonzo Ball debate because there are some very real questions about Lonzo Ball from his on-ball defense to creating in the half court to his pick-and-roll play to whether that shot translates off the dribble. And then there are some concerns that I think are, you know, you just kind of assume because he's a point guard who's known for his passing that he can't work with Simmons, and I don't see that. And then you get in the whole father debate, which clouds everything. Look, I have a real – right now I have a real struggle – trying to find a guy who has both upside and fit like that. And look, fit, there has never been a time where the Sixers have drafted and any, any part of this rebuild where fit has mattered more. None of these guys, with the exception of possibly Fultz, if you were number one, and luckily he fits anyway, unluckily you're not going to be in a position to draft him. But none of these guys project to be more important players, bigger impact players than Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. So ignoring their fit is almost impossible to do. Like a guy like, you know, even if a guy like Josh Jackson has, you know, primary creator potential, and I don't think he does, I think that's been overstated a little bit, but even if he would, if he doesn't fit with Ben Simmons or if he doesn't create better than Ben Simmons, that doesn't, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but you can't ignore his weaknesses as well. And I think one of the guys that has a lot of upside and also fits is Lonzo Ball. If he fell, I would absolutely have interest. Yeah, I think if, if he falls to three, I I feel really torn about two through eight, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. I feel like there's not a lot of separation after you, after Fultz and before you hit, like, Laurie Markinen and, like, maybe uh, Collins from, from Gonzaga. Like, I feel like that's – all that range is, like vi- – Basically, day by day, I kind of switch how I feel about it. But I think Jackson and Ball for me are just a, a shade above, with Ball being a little bit ahead of Jackson in ter- just because of the fit and everything with the Sixers. I think if he fell, I would, I'd lean pretty heavily towards Lonzo Ball. I think, I think you're right. I think the Lakers are going to go with Lonzo Ball. I, I will say the fact that that he's considering working out for the Sixers makes me think that his camp thinks there's a possibility that won't happen because you feel like. It feels as locked in almost, or felt up until a couple of days ago, that the Lakers were as locked in on ball as the Celtics are on Fultz. Sure. So for me, it, if I'm Lonzo Ball and I'm I'm 95% sure I'm going to the Lakers, I'm not working out for anyone because I don't want to get hurt. And you know, if the workout goes really just, poorly it, it, and whatever, like it gives off the appearance that you are sliding. Yeah, I mean, people generally just refuse to work out for people or for teams far lower in the draft than they expect to go. And for these guys at the top, that could be one or two spots. Well, especially for him because it's like, okay, so if he doesn't go two, like even if he doesn't work out for the Sixers, you'd feel pretty confident the Sixers will probably take you. And even if they don't, that like someone might trade up to get you or like unless he really would prefer to go to the Sixers and not fall beyond three or not have another team 
um, trade into that spot and take him, which I, I don't really see why that would be the case, even though I think he fits fairly well with the Sixers. Like, it's not a, a glamorous franchise to play for necessarily for Alonzo Ball. Like, I don't really get why what he stands to gain from working out for the Sixers. So it leads me to believe that maybe there's a little bit more of a thought that he could fall, that maybe Darren Fox or uh, Jason Tatum or one of these other players is on the Lakers' radar. I still think they're going to draft ball, but it, it's interesting that he decided to do that. No, I agree with you. I, I don't think that was just a willy-nilly random uh, decision to at least consider that. I think there has to be something behind it. We'll see. I mean, there's still we, – we have almost a month to go. There's still, you know, four weeks to go. Whether or not anything happens with those top two, I mean, right now it's so much it feels like people talk about the draft starts with Philadelphia. But there is still, while I, I feel like the top two prospects are pretty well defined, there is still a chance of a trade. There is still a chance that the Lakers do something, not unexpected, but, you know, if, if I guess a little bit unexpected. There is still a chance the Lakers go in another direction. It, uh, you know, last year at this time, everybody knew Embiid was, er, Embiid, uh, Simmons was going number one, and everybody knew Ingram was going to. This does feel a little more up in the air this year. Yeah, I, I think I think um, there's a lot more up in the air. Everything after the first pick, it's it's really unclear, and I think maybe we can talk a little bit more now about about where we stand at the moment. But I, I think just for me, as I've started to delve more now, knowing the Sixers are picking three, like delving more into the prospects that are in that range. Um, it's really hard. I feel like I go back and forth like every day on who I want in those positions. I mean, I think it's like the same five or six guys. It, that doesn't really change, but it's like whoever's Frankie Vision video I just watched is like jumps to the top of my board. It's like whether that's Dennis Smith or it's Josh Jackson or it's Jonathan Isaac. Like they're, I, I kind of feel like I convince I could convince myself that any of those guys is the second best player in this draft or third best yeah, player in this it, draft. I mean, last year I struggled in this three through eight range because there was nobody that really jumped out at me. Everybody that I saw, I, I saw overwhelming concern. And not that one or two of them won't overcome that, but, you know, there was, I had pretty real concern about most players in that range. This year is kind of the opposite. Anybody they could take in that three through eight range, I would have some level of, 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 of optimism. And certainly you still have major concerns about them. Uh, if you didn't, they would go higher. But you could at least talk yourself into it. And like you, it has been difficult for me to really nail down. You know, I, I, I struggled to put out a real, and, and I, I get asked this every day, but I struggled to put out a real big board because I want, I don't want it to present it that it's as set in stone as putting a list out there really does. And it's a lot more fluid than it is in most years. It, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's, like I said, if there's this one prospect where I could say this guy has both the upside and the fit, and because I am taking fit so much more into consideration, it has made this a little bit more of a minefield to navigate through. But every, everybody I look at, I do have at least some level of optimism. Yeah, and I think what it is is that after Fultz, who I really think, as I watch more Fultz, it's like so clear that he's the best player in this draft. And once you get after him, it's like there are five or six or seven guys who have superstar potential, but like one massive or two massive flaws. Right. And that includes Lonzo Ball, that includes Josh Jackson, um, Dennis Smith, Jonathan Isaac. Like, all of them have one or two areas of their game you point to and go, like, I don't know. But then you watch their, yeah. their 
clips, and it's like they are elite in one area. Like Darren Fox is an elite transition player, and he's so fast and really physically gifted and a good passer. Lonzo Ball obviously has the the passing and the range and is decently athletic, but then there's, you know, the wonkiness of his game and on-ball defense and all that. Like, I don't know. It's it's There's a lot of guys you point to and you go like, well, if you could just fix this one thing, and it's I guess, comes down to whose one thing is the most fixable. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it also comes down to the, the player fixing the one thing, and that is the area of this whole thing that we have the least amount of information on. You know, it's it's last year, Brian Colangelo kind of had, you know, he had a layup. He had a, a decision that wasn't really a decision that was kind of made for him with Ben Simmons. This year, he's going to earn his pay a lot more because all of these guys do have talent that makes them legitimate potential picks. But one of these guys, first of all, you have to figure out which weaknesses you're more willing to live live without. But you also have to figure out which one is going to be kind of the outlier in terms of improvement. And that is the always the hardest part, hardest part of this process. Any scout worth his, his real weight could tell you this is what a guy does well. This is what a guy, it gets a little harder when you say this is what he's going to do well at the NBA level. But a lot of people can do that successfully. But figuring out who's going to improve more than, more than the norm, that is a real difficult spot. That is what we as a media have the least amount of information on. And that really is where the biggest mistakes are made. But yeah, it's, I mean, everybody here, like you said, from, from Ball to Jackson to Tatum and Isaac and Dennis Smith and Malik Monk, they all have very pronounced strengths and weaknesses. They all have at least something they could add to the team. It's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just so, it's such a unique situation where Sixers are because they do have Simmons, they do have Embiid, and you do have to complement those. Like I said, whoever you take, there's a very low chance that they're going to end up being a better prospect, a better focal point of your team than those two guys. So whether or not you can play with them is is going to be a big well, deal. Do you think do you think then it's worth it's worth thinking about this decision if you're viewing it that way as if if these players don't pan out if they end up just being role players or they never figure out that one part of their game or the aspects of their game that are uh, you know troubling right now who fits best like do you think at that point maybe you make the decision based on like okay well I'm pretty sure even if Malik Monk doesn't work out, he's going to be an awesome fit for our roster and right. plays a role as a shooter. Or, you know, Jonathan Isaac, he's a versatile defender and he can stretch the floor a little bit. Like, versus um, someone like Fox, who if he doesn't figure out his jumper, I just don't know how he fits at all in this roster. Well, even somebody like Jackson. And I think that's probably where a lot of disagreement comes in. Because it is, I do think, I think that, the chance of Jackson just not being a fit for this team is higher than I think a lot of people view it. And I think a lot of people view him as a safe prospect because he does so many things well. I think there's some truth to that. He does do a lot of things well. I'm not going to say otherwise. But a lot of what he does well outside of, you know, defensively, defensively he's going to be a contributor almost regardless, or at least I can't, I don't see a likely path where he isn't. But offensively, you know, his shot creation is going to be dependent on his ability to shoot from the perimeter and their need to go up fight through screens or need to really respect that shot. If they don't have to respect that, it's going to be harder for him to create at a high level. His ability to drive and get in the paint, again, another legitimately, another legitimate skill that he has, but if he is, if they can play so far off of him and if they can go under pick and rolls, then he's not going to be able to really maximize that strength. 
So I do think there's some, you know, I, th- I think Jackson's kind of really the quintessential. He could develop his shot and end up being the perfect third option. Or he could really, you could really struggle to, f- to fit him alongside Embiid and Simmons. And that could be a real tough, tough match. So I think he's, he's a perfect example of that. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think Fox is the other obvious example as well. I mean, this is a guy who shot like 25% off of catch and shoot shots. And I, I released this, I released a graphic of this where, you know, you have effective field goal percentage on one axis and you have attempts on the other axis. You know, he was kind of in the bottom left corner where his effective field goal percentage was like sub 30% and he took only so many, uh, maybe like 40 catch and shoot attempts. That's not the greatest fit with the Sixers. That's a real, and a lot of these guys, like Fultz, I think 80% of Fultz's attempts were, the catch and shoot attempts were contested. Fox was like half of that. They were giving him open looks. He couldn't convert. So yes, he has, there's some reason to be optimistic with the form. There's some reason to be optimistic with with his, his free throw. But translating that out to the NBA three-point line, I think that's a real, very legitimate concern. And if that doesn't translate, then the rest of the game, what do you have? Yeah, he's a, he's a pesky defender on the perimeter. He can get in the paint. But again, if you if they don't have to respect that jump shot, how much can you really expect him to get at the paint at an, at an elite level? He's going to be very, very... He, he's another one where because of his fit with the team, I don't know how you don't take that into account. Yeah. No, totally. And, and I think that's where, with Josh Jackson, going to the lottery, I was like, okay, I think this is a three-player. Not to say that after three... You can't find a player, but this is a, a draft where the top player is clearly the top guy. There are two guys after that that are fairly close, and then there's a drop-off. And I don't feel like that right now, partially because the more I've watched Lonzo Ball and the more I've watched Josh Jackson, I see those flaws. And with Josh Jackson in particular, who has been my number two guy for, for a little while now, like I, I maybe fell into that camp where I saw him as being so well-rounded and having so many aspects of his game that could help you that um, he had a, a low floor or a high floor, but I don't really feel like that anymore. And for the reasons you just described. And I mean, it's so much like if the Sixers were, you know, there, there's two ways to look at it. First of all, it's what will Josh Jackson be if he doesn't improve his jump shot in a meaningful way? And then the other is what are the odds that he improves his jump shot in a meaningful way? And you could say, you know, because his upside is so high, if he does improve it, even if there's not necessarily a high chance that he does does improve it and become a good shooter, you'll bet on that off chance because the upside is worth it. And maybe if the Sixers were two years prior in their rebuild, that would be a valid way of looking at it. But because, it, like I said, there's a relatively small chance that he ends up being a better player than Simmons and Embiid. And because that fit would be so bad if he doesn't, then it's the philosophy with the Sixers. I really do think he is where... He is where um, you know you kind of have to really look at where the, the rebuild is and investigate whether or not he makes sense for this team and for this spot. It's tough because passing on talent sucks, and it really makes me queasy doing so. But I'm I'm very concerned about that jumper. Yeah, same. All right, what else do we have here? Uh, Bill Simmons twice on his podcast mentioned moving, trading with the Sixers. The proposal he keeps throwing out is. Um, Number three pick, the Lakers pick in 2018, and Dario Scharch. I guess real quick, we don't want to spend too much time on it because it's kind of a made-up proposal. It does make sense that the Sixers would entertain moving up, but I don't know how much sense it makes sense. I don't know how much it makes sense for Boston to move down. But is that something where you would have interest in? I'm really torn about about this deal. I feel like 
the problem with giving up that Lakers pick is if that I I think I think for me sorry I'm I'm having trouble with this I think I think for me it's a trade that neither team can make because for the Sixers that Lakers pick from a team that unless something crazy happens is going to be probably bottom five bottom six in record next year that's a really good shot at a top two or three pick in a draft that is supposed to have two or three or four you know franchise type players between Donkic and Michael Porter Jr. and Mo Bamba. Like, I feel like, and we're so far out, we're a year out from that draft and things change. And a year ago, Harry Giles was the number one player in this draft. Like, things change. But I think giving up that shot at the number one or number two or three pick in a really, what's supposed to be a really good draft, plus giving up the three pick, plus giving up one of your, you know, a guy locked in on three more years of not making a lot of money who can contribute in Charich. It's a lot to give up for the Sixers, even though I love Fultz. And I, and part of that is, it was like you said earlier about last year's draft versus this year's draft. Like this year, it's tough to make the decision at three because you like so many guys. Whereas if it had been at four, let's say last year, or even three, even the three pick last year, like you would have had trouble because you were trying to find that guy who you felt good about. Right now it's like there's so many guys I want that I don't want to pass up on any of them. So I don't know. I, I feel like giving giving up that three pick, giving up the chance of the Lakers pick, and Dario was just a little bit too much for me, even though I'd be really tempted. And for the Lakers – or I'm sorry, for the Celtics, it's like, I don't know, they're in a position where if they're if they're trading that number one pick, it should be for a player who can help them get over the hump. And if not, I don't see how packaging it down to get three things when they're a team that's, like, right on the edge. They were in the conference finals this year um, and had the best record in the East. I just don't see why they do that. And if I'm them, I'm just taking Markel Fultz. And if I don't take Markel Fultz, I'm trading him for a player. Yeah, I mean, to me, the only reason that Boston would even entertain it is if they have Josh Jackson rated higher than they have Markel Fultz. And I don't think I don't think that to be the case. It, like you said, trading for more young pieces – and taking a an elite prospect and trading it for, you know, a good prospect, Dario Saric and another future pick. It just doesn't it doesn't make sense with really either direction, whether that's you know, rebuilding and trying to build around an elite talent which has avoided them so far in the rebuild, or whether that's trying to get that, you know, that current player, that veteran to try to push them over the top. It doesn't satisfy any of those avenues. So I would be surprised. Like I said, the only way I could really see that happening is if Boston does have you know, Josh Jackson rated higher than, than Fultz. That being said, it's an easy yes for me. And I thought about it a lot for a little bit, and I went back and forth, and then I, I, I really just sat down and I thought about it, and I said, look, what are the odds, even if the Lakers end up with the you know fourth worst record, what's the odds of that going to be a top two pick? Okay, you know, you're looking at it, it's like maybe, what, 25 30%. What are the odds that the Lakers could be better than a fourth worst record? And it might not be that high, but it's there. It's there. And even if you end up getting a top two pick, what are the odds that that is A, a better prospect than Markel Fultz, and B, a better fit than Markel Fultz? And the combination of all of those three when I added them together, it's just, you know, Markel Fultz is an elite prospect. He's probably going to be there with Doncic and Porter in terms of just his, his ability as a player. I think he's going to be a better fit than, certainly a better fit than Porter. Getting a guy with that kind of elite talent who fits almost perfectly with Embiid and Simmons, I can't pass that up. And I would give up an absurd amount to make that a reality. I, I do think he's clearly the best 
talent in this draft. I do think he's a very legitimate number one pick. And I'm kind of surprised that there wouldn't be a little more interest in doing that from from the you know kind of the temp the temperature I gauge from Sixers fans. In which case it was about 67% no. I think a lot of people look at at these two draft picks. First of all, I think a lot of people overrate overrated Dario Charge in this equation. The fact that he was kind of the sticking point for a lot of people blows my mind. Because when I look at it and I look at the the things we're talking about, Charge, the number three pick, the Lakers pick next year, and and Fultz, he is far and away the fourth most valuable of that list. But for a lot of people, he was the he was the sticking point. And look, I get that he is emotionally he is a very <clears throat> very exciting personality. You've watched him come over. You've gone through the fights of whether or not he even would. It would uh. You know, it, it would be tough to lose him. It would be tough to watch him in, in in Celtics green. I get all of that, but I think when you kind of remove lot, or when you move emotion from that equation, in four years, if Markel Fultz is a superstar and you turn down that trade because of Dario Saric, who you don't even know if he's going to be a starter, he might be a sixth man on your team. That to me is is I I couldn't believe how much that that became a part of the argument. So I think when you look at the two picks that are in question here, you know, what are the odds that both of those players, the three pick and the Lakers pick turn into an all-star caliber player. And I think that's very, very low. I don't think we're really necessarily... I, I, I think we kind of kid ourselves on how much risk there is even in the 2-5 through five portion of the draft. So certainly getting two superstars to the level of what I expect Fultz to be is out of the question. Getting two, two all-stars where you can make a case, well, you know, maybe you have a big two and then two all-stars is better than a big three, and I'm not sure I necessarily even agree with that, but even that is really... Really, it it would be you would be overshooting your draft slot considerably if you got two all stars with these picks, and then if you look at it where you might not even get a you know upside of it, might not even be a single player better than Fultz or a single player who fits better than Fultz. To me, it's just this is an opportunity. If it actually existed, I would pounce on it with with little hesitation. I just don't think it's going to be out there. Yeah, I guess as you as you talk about it, I get more and more sold on it, and the idea of having Embiid, Simmons, and Fultz. Uh, you just have to feel so good about that. And and, rea- and, I mean just, and reality, it's not like you're really like mortgaging your future. You're giving up a pick you got for MCW that is in addition to a pick your own pick that you own. You're giving up Dario, who was you know a pick you got in a trade, and the then you're using the pick to move up the three pick. Yeah, I mean it, it's look having having that kind of certainty and having a third star level player. It does so much for your. First of all, for your salary cap, because you have that kind of talent locked in at such a below average rate. And, and truthfully, like we talk about, we talk about depth. You know, the role players, the Dario Saric in three years when he comes up for a contract, they're the type that are more likely to be overpaid. It's it's really hard if these three players actually turn into stars. It's difficult to overpay them, especially on the twenty five percent max. So it helps you also attract other stars because you have these guys under contract. You have them, you know, you know what you have. And as they improve throughout the league, they will get you know more recognition. And it also just helps your finances so much. And it makes going out and acquiring kind of those extra pieces, those role players that would take this to the next level. It makes it so much easier because you have you have three guys you can count on. It look, I love I love Markel Fultz. I think he's going to be a really terrific NBA player. I do think a lot of people underrate him because he very rarely played on a national stage. And because the team was so bad, but uh, uh, I, I think he would be a great. Th- I mean, really, if you're looking at a in terms of okay, if you're going to craft a player to be the third option on a Ben Simmons Joel Embiid team, 
Markel Markel Fultz is pretty close to the uh, the the creative player I would come up with in two K. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Moving off of that, about all we have, you know, there was kind of that you brought this up, uh, Embiid mentioning at the lottery, he's two weeks away from you know kind of playing basketball again. Who knows exactly what that means in terms of you know, what he can do on the court, but it is at least something interesting. Uh, and then also there was the Otto Porter, the report from Sean Devaney of the Sporting News, that the Sixers, you know, that his, I, what his sources told him that it is a possibility the Sixers make a run at Otto Porter, something of that sort, which I don't think surprises anybody, but is at least a, a you know, something, something out there, a, a report out there that we can talk about. Yeah, I like Otto Porter a lot. Um, I'd be pretty happy with, with him signing him, and I don't really think there's... I think he's one of those players that in the CBA um, is going to make a lot of money and people are going to balk at, but I think he's worth it. I think um, the position the Sixers are in, it's like the next two years, the salaries don't really matter. And around the time that Simmons comes off the books is when you really feel like the salaries matter. So I get not wanting to sign a guy on a long-term deal, but with a guy like Otto Porter, I, I almost feel like there's almost no risk because the absolute worst worst case situation is he doesn't actualize his talent. He never gets any better. Maybe even he gets hurt and, you know, um, gets worse. But you're signing him on a four-year deal. So by the time you get to the point in the deal where you're trying to re-sign your own players and you care about that money, like, he'll either be an expiring contract or he'll have two years left on his deal and he'll be a 20-whatever, 27, 26, 25-year-old player I, I kind of feel like with the, with the, it was kind of like the Harrison Barnes thing last year, and people balked at that, and like, what if he doesn't get any better? And right now he is kind of a, a bad contract. But it's like, is he really that bad? Because if in a year the Dallas Mavericks decided to trade him, they could find somebody, some rebuilding team that has money that they're not going to use anyway to just take him for nothing or take him for a late first or a couple seconds. Like, I just, I don't. I think the problem is when you sign older, like Kyle Lowry, which we talked about a lot. If Kyle Lowry falls off, now he's 35 years old and making $35 million. That's the kind of unmovable contract that, like, really hamstrings you. But if you're talking about a young player, like, even the Blazers last year with with Alan Crabb, like, if in a year that the Blazers wanted to move Alan Crabb, they'd probably have to give up, you know, a protected pick or another player or you know, a couple second round picks and maybe take on another team's lesser bad deal. Like it, I think you can work with it as long as the player is young enough and somebody is out there who might believe in that player turning it around. Yeah. And I mean, look, Otto Porter has shown enough, you know, kind of gradual steady improvement through his four year career. And it really has been a straight, steady, gradual improvement where even if he has a down year next year and you sign him to a big deal, people are going to give him a year or two to prove that that wasn't just a down year. Like nobody, I don't think anybody's going to jump to the conclusion that he is regressing after he improved every year he was in the league. So I agree with you with how valued shooting is and how good of a shooter he has become. If you do have to move his contract, I don't think it would be difficult to do. And look, we can debate whether or not he would fit with with um, Covington, whether you could play them as a 2-3. But I think he is a player that you would target. And the only reason he's really available, and who knows if he actually is, but because Washington is in such a bad cap situation, I still, though, if I look at it, I think they're going to, and we looked it up, they'd be at like about $90 million committed before signing a guy like Porter, and I think they have one or two more more, more players that are going to need new contracts. 
so you could see a case where they could be entering in close to uh, close to the luxury tax zone. I still think if it comes down to it, they're going to find a way to create create a little bit of room so that they can sign Porter without without jumping into the luxury tax territory because they have no way through draft picks or or cap space to replace what he brings to the table. Well, I think that's probably a, a good place to cut it off. We will have a bigger group podcast soon. Uh, we will get our big boards out there. I know we're kind of hedging on everything, and part of that is because of our own natural indecision. But uh, thank you for hopping on, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. See ya. You've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co. 